Hi, welcome to episode 52 of the Axiom Podcast. I'm here solo this week, uh, giving Devin the week off, because I was asked to speak at an industry conference. The Florida Institute of Certified Public Accountants asked me to speak this week on leadership, which is not something that CPAs typically uh, talk about. Uh, but this is a group of controllers and CFOs, mostly in larger organizations. And, uh, and so we're going to share the recording of, of this um, talk that I did. And then in the show notes, we'll put up uh, a link where you can see the actual presentation uh, that I'm walking through, if that's something that you're interested in. So I hope this is helpful to you, and we'll see you back here next week. Hi, my name is Joey Brannan, and I'm your next panelist. Um, I hope that my comments will prove as practically useful and beneficial to you as the the previous two speakers who are kind of diving into economic realities that we're facing. When we move into a topic like this on leadership, it can be a little bit more nuanced. And uh, but my hope is that my my goal is that it is intensely practical for what you do tomorrow uh, in your business, this afternoon when you start interacting with your teams, uh, next week as you move forward through the remainder of this year. And just a little bit of background on me. I am not a leadership guru. I do not spend my day job uh, on, on stage giving keynote speeches or inspiring people about leadership. What I've done for the last 15 years is build a small little boutique consulting company that works with businesses that are typically $2 million to $50 million in revenue on strategic planning and execution. We help businesses build plans to grow. And one of the things that we've had to cope with, the reality that we've had to face, is that we can plan all we want, and we've got all the tools and the tricks in terms of execution. We've got the disciplines. We've got the methodology. We've got a proven system for helping businesses grow, but we can take two businesses that have uh, almost identical plans or just as, you know, just as built out a plan, and the business that has a better leadership capacity is going to outperform the other 100% of the time. And it even goes so far as the business with a poorly, uh, a poorly conceived plan that has a better leadership capacity is still going to outperform this. So we've had to address leadership in the client companies that we work with if we want to make any progress toward great execution and great strategy. So the stuff that, that I'm going to share with you today is the result of 15 years of throwing stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks, what actually works in these types of organizations. But when we talk about leadership, it is nuanced, and it is somewhat ethereal. So... I'll start with a story um, that I think kind of illustrates what I, what I hope to convey. And this goes back 20-plus years when I was a young professional, and I was cutting my teeth as my, kind of my second big professional position was working in a startup, and it was a technology startup. And I was the guy who was charged with building all the financial models and starting to put together some of the processes for operations, and we were going out for a friends and family round of investment. And my job was obviously everything financial in that document, um, projections and forward-looking statements and all of that was in, was in my wheelhouse. And so that's the part that I was responsible for. And the day came when we were assembling all the packets to send out to you know, 30 to 50 friends and family, quote-unquote, um, invest, potential investors. And I'm shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with all of my colleagues in this small startup. There's probably eight, nine, ten of us at the time. And this back in the old days, uh, we weren't assembling PDFs. We were assembling real pieces of paper that had come you know, straight from Kinko's. And I had my spreadsheet packages, and they had their Word documents, and marketing had their pretty graphs and collateral materials. And we're trying to interleave all these things into the package in the right order. And the people that I'm standing beside are way more accomplished and way more pedigreed and way they just outclassed me by a mile. Our CTO, our chief technology officer, had been voted the CTO for the state of Florida by her peers the year prior. And somehow, we got her to come work for us. Our marketing guys were straight out of P&G, and they had very successful careers there and then left to start their own companies and be chief marketing officers and venture capitalists to other places. Um, our CEO, the guy who recruited me, and our president both were highly successful in the banking industry and, and had run big sales organizations before starting this venture. And I'm just trying to hold my own, trying to tread water and, and keep up with these people. 
And there was a point in our assembly process where I lost track of what was going on, and I freaked out. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. wait, 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 the, something's wrong. We're, we we got to stop. And I, I panicked, and the panic apparently was pretty visible. I didn't realize it at the time. But after a minute, I got my bearings, and I realized I had just, the, the problem wasn't with the assembly, it was with me. I kind of lost track of, of what was supposed to be happening where, and I was like, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. Let's keep going. And about a day or two later, the CEO who had recruited me into this organization as a guy who I kind of I really looked up to. He's a great, kind of just, just a great mentor figure. He said, hey, let's go out for a drink. And so we, we got together, and uh, he said, hey, like, that thing that happened uh, a couple days ago, that can't happen again. And uh, I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, when you, because I believe in you. I know that you belong at this at this company. I know you've earned your seat at the table. But the jury's still out with some of these other guys. They're still kind of wondering, like, what is this young guy doing in the midst of all these more senior, more experienced people? And when you lost it the other day, when you had zero poise and zero composure under pressure, it affected your stock in their eyes, and it went down considerably, and you're going to have to bust your ass to work your way back and get in a position where they feel like they can, that you can lead and they'll trust you with responsibility. And I was devastated. I was, you know, this was somebody I looked up to, and, and the, the devastation was not just letting him down. It was the fact that I had completely missed the fact that I had let him down in the moment. And so I did. I worked my ass off to try to get back to a, a, a stature and a status of respect and capable of handling responsibility. And I felt like I achieved that, and he affirmed that later. But, if, but maybe 10 years after that, uh, I got a call, and Larry had, had come down with cancer. And, and Larry was the CEO. And, and then he succumbed a few years later. And, and I was at his funeral. Some of my colleagues were there, former work colleagues. And, uh, and I shared that story. I, sh I share that story a lot. And I have always shared that story as an illustration of what it looks like to have hard conversations with people. But what I discovered during, during our time together after the service was that a lot of people had very similar stories. And that, that story became not an illustration of hard conversations, but, what, but an illustration of what it means to have other people's interests at heart. Larry was a great leader because his primary concern was not the success of the company. In that moment, his primary concern was my success as a professional on his team. His primary concern was giving a young guy information that was going to help him get to the next level. And so many other people had experiences with him, and it, it changed. And my, I always felt like he was a great leader, but it changed why I considered him a great leader. And so I hope that in some of the things that we're going to talk about today, we can remove the nuance, and we can remove the fuzziness, and we can give you some practical kind of hard-edged hard uh, parameters for what it looks like to build a pipeline of leaders in your company. So we're going to talk in five general areas, the need for, for a leadership pipeline, the concept of leadership. When we say leadership, what, what the heck are we talking about? The foundation, the things that you have to do. If you don't do these things, pretty much every other effort you layer on top or try to layer on top is not going to be successful. So there's some foundational elements you're going to have to take care of in your company in order to be able to develop leaders going forward. And then the practices, what are the tangible activities that companies who, who want to build a leadership pipeline, what are they engaged in? What does it look like day in, day out inside those businesses? And then finally, the challenge. Uh, why not everyone is called to leadership, and that's okay, but it does give us a right to expect more of our leaders. So we're going to get started. I do have a few poll questions sprinkled in here, and so the first poll question is really just designed to give, give me an idea and give the rest of us an idea of the size of the various organizations that are represented today. So I'll hand it over to Mia, and we can get that first poll question going. All righty. Um, so our first polling question is, how many people are in your organization? Um, the numbers are coming in. Um, very strongly, 51 to 200. Uh, 200 is coming in a lot. Um, 1 to 20. 21 to 50. I didn't do that in order. Can you tell I'm a CPA? <laughs> I'm just kind of reading how the numbers are coming in. So we actually have 
um, over 93% of the people have put their numbers in. So I'm going to go ahead and close it. So our highest number is over 200, 200 employees. We had 49% there, Joey. Okay. We had a 39, 33% at 51 to 200. We had 11% with between 1 to 20 people. And we had 7% with 21 to 50 people. Okay. So I'll, I'll preface everything we're about to say that we've seen this stuff work inside organizations of like startup teams of five to six people up to 300, 400 plus person organizations. So it is universal, but I will say the need is more, is more acutely felt uh, in at the onset with larger companies. The smaller companies, they're able to get their legs under them and maybe roll some of this stuff out in a little bit measured manner. The larger companies, like I said, the pain points are acute and they're typically pretty hot to try to get some of this stuff started. So let's talk about the need. And when we talk about what is the need for a leadership pipeline, well, there's definitely current and future needs. Pretty much all of us can look at, especially if you're in one of those organizations of 200 plus people, I guarantee you can look at an org chart, an accountability chart, you know, however you view it, in your organization, and you can identify some specific spots where you need leaders right now. And that's because there may be current vacancies, it's because there are impending vacancies due to retirement, it could be that uh, you have some toxic people in leadership positions that are actually working against you and you know you need to change them out, but those are Great examples of current needs. Most of, I won't say most, all of the companies that we work with have some type of growth orientation. They're trying to grow either in size or capacity, industry ranking, and they're in the situations where that growth is going to produce a need for future leaders. So the department that has one or two people in it now, when our growth plans really take root and start to get traction, that department's going to be a department of six, seven, eight people, and it's going to require that somebody step into a leadership role where there maybe wasn't necessarily a need for that prior to the growth. And then finally, unanticipated needs. None of us know which key member of the team, which key leader is going to get hit by a bus tomorrow or get diagnosed with a terminal illness or jump ship to go with a competitor. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but there are also situations where people decide to go hang their own shingle and go start their own enterprise. And those unanticipated needs are going to arise, too. The point is, in all of these situations, if you don't have a leadership pipeline, if you don't have a group of people that you can look to and say, we've been working to develop the skills and the, the leadership capacity in, in this set of people, which one has the specific technical skill competency or managerial skill competency to be a good fit for this position? If you don't have that, then you're forced to go outside the organization and try to find those people. Or more, more often, other leaders in the organization have to split their time and become overwhelmed, have too many direct reports, be responsible for too much on their plate. And this, we've all experienced situations where a company will take three steps forward in terms of growth and then two steps back when these leadership voids make themselves known. So the, the point of, of the work that we do with clients is, look, if you're not going to develop a leadership pipeline, whatever growth we experience is only going to be in the moment. It's not going to be sustainable. If we're working toward a 15 or a 20 or a 30-year vision, you better commit to having a leadership pipeline. Otherwise, we're just going to have these fits and starts that become increasingly frustrating for the owner who, as they kind of move along the timeline of the business, are wanting to move up in terms of more passive activities, more leadership role activities, and less into the day-to-day -day operations of, of working with people and solving problems. So leadership pipeline is definitely in play for current and future needs. But the other piece of it is that in the present, a leadership pipeline gives you a tremendous competitive advantage. So these are two fairly small businesses, and these are real examples. They're both in the insurance industry, and one has 35 employees, one has 32 employees. They do about the same amount in revenue. But in the one organization that's 35, there's a CEO, there's four identified leaders at the table. So there's five people kind of at the, at the table making decisions about the business and, and being held responsible for high-level results. There are eight other people in the organization that they call A players. Like, well, these are great folks. Like, we don't know what we'd do without them. You know, they, we, we worked hard to find these people, and we're going to work hard to retain them. And then there's everybody else. 
And then in the other business that has gone to the trouble to develop a leadership pipeline, there's still five people at that table. There's one CEO and there's four leaders. There's 12 people who are not at the table but have been identified as having the desire and the call to lead and are being specifically tutored, mentored, trained up in leadership capacity and skill sets. And there are six other people who they're, they're not necessarily leaders. They don't feel called to be leaders. We're going to talk about what that looks like in a second. But they do uh, have this desire to increase their professional capacity and they're in professional development tracks. There's four people in the organization who are in their rookie season, meaning that they are new, newly hired in the last two years and they're in a very uh, intentional track of mentorship and orientation and exposure to different areas of the business so that they understand where they fit in the big picture. And then there's five other people. Like not everybody's going to be you know, at the, at the top level. Not everybody's going to want to get better every day. We wish that were the case, but the reality just isn't. The question is, if you're a customer, which one of these organizations would you, do you think that you would get the better experience from? And that the reality, I can tell you the answer. The answer is, in a top company, it depends. It depends on who you interact with. If you are lucky enough to get stuck with one of those eight A players, it's going to be a stellar experience. But just playing by the odds, you know, that's maybe a one in three, one in four chance. If you're in the second company, which happens to be a little bit smaller, the customer experience is nearly universally uh, good. And there's going to be a competitive advantage enjoyed in the market by the company that wants to develop a leadership pipeline. So finally, engagement. Now, I am not one of those people who believes uh, a lot of the millennial hoopla. Like, I've got millennials on my team, uh, but I can tell you, like, the things that we, this is so funny, like, the things that you hear about millennials, like, oh, they're disengaged, and they, they're, they're so entitled, and they don't have the same work ethic that I had. You know what? When I was 22, 23 years old, the baby boomers who hired me were saying the exact same thing about me, and I'm a Gen Xer. So, I mean, some of this is generational. Yes, they have access to technology, and yes, that presents some challenges. But I'll tell you what, if you look at a baby boomer who's addicted to his phone, it looks very similar to a millennial who's addicted to theirs. So uh, just as a caveat, I say I don't put a lot of stock in millennials. We do have one millennial statistic in here from Gallup, but I think it's more a function of not millennials, but who are the people who are early in their professional career. That's how I read it. And that Gallup statistic of 87% consider development in a job important. That is, that's universal. That was the case among 87% of my peers when I was starting out professionally. It was probably the case with 87% of your peers when you're starting off professionally, whenever that was, whether that was with me in the 90s or prior to that, or in the, in the early 2000s. It doesn't matter. The point is, if we're not willing to wake up to the reality that the people who come to work for us, that volunteer to come to work for us every day, want professional development opportunities and want leadership development opportunities, which is different from developing a technical skill set, if we're not willing to wake up to that reality, and a competitor is, they're only going to be with us for a short time. I don't know about you, but in the world that I live in, Southwest Florida, right now we practice from roughly Tampa to Port Charlotte, and the, the unemployment rate for professionals is virtually zero. The unemployment rate for skilled trade labor is zero. And if you're not willing to engage these people, somebody else will, and they're looking for them. That's the need. I hope I've convinced you that the stuff we're going to talk about is important. But what is leadership? I think it's important that we distinguish skill from character. And, and I kind of start in this layered approach. So the first layer is competency, right? We all want, so when we, we talk about A players, what we're typically talking about is people who are skilled in their work. They're self-conscious. They take pride in it. They want to get better. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about blue collar, gray collar, white collar. You could be talking about a welder who wants to be known as the best damn welder on the production floor. You could be talking about an accountant who wants to be a partner. You could be talking about a customer service rep who wants to win the quality award for the company. You could be talking about a CFO who aspires to a CEO role. It doesn't matter. Competency is one of those things that is primarily skills-based, and we want to get better and better and better at the skill. And sometimes people graduate to, to a level of accountability. Now, we might call this like management. 
And the people who, who graduate from competency to accountability, meaning they're able to get results by learning a skill of holding others accountable, that's kind of like a managerial function, they have to be humble enough to learn that new skill. How many times have you seen like the, our best plumber in the field, like this is the, this is the go-to person that we rely on to keep projects on track, to make sure that guys show up on time, to make sure the quality is great, to troubleshoot issues that didn't show up in the technical drawings. You make a great plumbing service manager. Let's bring him in the office. And it's a total failure. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about plumbers or electricians or accountants or engineers or architects or attorneys. To be able to learn that skill of being able to get results by holding other people accountable, you have to demonstrate a level of humility to learn that skill. And it's not surprising that the people who are most confident, who competent, who have that kind of, uh, they're self-conscious about their work and they take a lot of pride in it, sometimes over time that builds ego. And they have a really hard time admitting that they don't necessarily know how to manage people. They don't know how to do the administrative side of the job. And then finally, we get to this top level of servant leader. And that's a person who really demonstrates a desire to see fulfillment through the success of others. Their highest and best use is making sure that other people are realizing their highest and best use. The point to all of this is that whether you're talking about competency or whether you're talking about a managerial accountability skill set, those are skills. They're, they're straight-up skills. They're definite things that you, it's a matter of putting in your reps to get better. But when we get to that leadership threshold, it's deciding that your identity is to be in service of others, and then that determines, that the needs of the other people determine which skills and which resources you need to go acquire to be a good leader, because good leadership means that they're successful. And when we look at our organizations, we have to realize that some people are not interested in that switching that character switch. They're not interested in putting on an identity as a leader. And that's okay. But we've got way too many organizations where it's just taken for granted that when you're really good at what you do, we should have you lead other people. And that person has never had any desire in making anybody else successful other than themselves. And I'm not saying it's because they're selfish. I'm just saying it's because that's not their calling. The kind of the biggest takeaway here that I've... I, I try to get our clients to recognize, I want you to recognize, is that you cannot be a leader without being focused on people. And it doesn't have to do with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or you, you know, where you fit on a DISC profile or Myers-Briggs or Enneagram. None of that is predeterminative. The, the thing that is determinative is whether or not you are willing to be focused on people during your work. Is that, is that something that appeals to you? If it's not... Like I said, that's okay, but those people should not be on your leadership team. They will, they will undermine self, subconsciously, uh, inadvertently, by accident, or on purpose, pretty much every leadership initiative that you try to launch. One of the other things that we talk about a lot, uh, there's a great book, pretty much every, every idea that I have, I stole from somebody else. Like not, none of this stuff is original. It's a kind of a hodgepodge, like I said, of 15 years of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. But Daniel Coyle wrote this book in 2018 called The Culture Code. If you're at all interested in this leadership stuff and, and upping your game in terms of understanding what it looks like, uh, this is a must-read book. But one of the biggest takeaways that our team took, our entire team read this book together, one of the biggest takeaways was this idea of a safe, connected future. That's the leader's job, to create a safe, connected future. Safe means that there is an interpersonal environment where people can share ideas. They're comfortable taking risks. They're comfortable putting new ideas up on the whiteboard or saying, hey, there's a problem in this area of the business. Uh, it's not even my department, but I think maybe there's a way to make this better. And if you don't have that safe environment, nobody brings those ideas to the table. They stay in their lane, they stay in their silo, and they expect everybody else to stay out of their silo. Or when somebody does jump into their silo, kind of the MO has become, let me prove to them all the reasons why this can't work. And this is very, very easy to see in our work with clients. It's almost, it's probably the easiest thing in the world to identify is when we have a safe environment and when we don't. And it's the leader's job to provide that. Sometimes they provide it by removing people that are, are consistently toxic to that environment. But a lot of times, 
they create it by working one-on-one -on -one with individuals to, to pull the ideas out of them and then help them present them shoulder to shoulder so they don't feel like the spotlight's all on them. And if it does get shot down, it's not just them getting shot down and, you know, the leader's going to go down with me and that's, that's okay. I'd rather go down with them than alone. But a leader who wants to create that environment is going to have to do the work. They're going to have to kind of be emotionally intelligent and aware of what's going on too, but we'll get to that later. Connected. What does it mean to have a safe, connected future? Well, connection is really about having a set of shared values and purpose. If we do the same things for the same reason, then there's a lot of goodwill that goes back and forth. If we both know that we're trying to get this company to, to this particular vision or, or the shared values, we're talking about values in a second, but that we both kind of internalized those values and we believe that they're the best way for us to go about our business, then it's going to be much easier for us to work together versus we don't have a set of shared values. We're, I'm doing this because it's the bucket list opportunity that I'll never get in my life. You're doing it for the money. You're doing it because you're waiting out the last few years before your next career change. There's not going to be a connection. And if the leader doesn't realize that, then they're going to be limited in the results they can get from the team. And finally, the future. There has to be a shared sense of where we're going. If people don't understand that there is a future here, then there's really not a reason for us to dig deep and confront each other or to come up with better ideas or to work together or to step out of our comfort zone. So establishing a vision, which is really, really a core leadership function, has to be done so that they can give context to the work that they're all doing together. And then finally, another one of our great resources uh, another good book that most people have read by Patrick Lencioni's 2016 book called The Ideal Team Player. He talks about smart, hungry, humble. And these are pretty self-evident. Your leaders need to be smart, hungry, humble. It's not just ideal team players. It's, you know, this is kind of prerequisites for leaders. What does it mean to be smart? Well, number one, you're secure. Like insecure people are typically not smart. They may be book smart, but they're, gonna, they're not going to be emotionally smart in the sense of being able to understand what's going on. Smart people also are ones who, they, they get comfortable. They're, they're the ones who hire challengers. Uh, they're the ones who will, will go out and look for people who are better than they are in a particular skill set and are not going to be threatened by it. And finally, we talked about that emotional intelligence. The ability to look around the room and actually understand what's going on. Or in today's parlance, you know, notice what's happening on the Zoom call that's not being said. Follow up with people, probe a little bit deeper, understand where personal motivations lie, understand where personal chemistry is and isn't working in the organization. Those are smart leaders. Hungry, they have a long-term vision. They're not satisfied with the status quo. They're always on mission, meaning they're always thinking about why are we here to do what we're supposed to be doing and does it matter. And they take responsibility. This is huge. Hungry people take responsibility. The ones who are more interested in blame, they're not really trying to get anywhere other than to, to be in a state of self-preservation. But you can tell a hungry person, you can tell a person who's ambitious because they're more than willing to say, hey, um, I'll take that. Uh, you know, that, that issue that we're struggling with, that mistake that happened, I'll work with the team to resolve it. And, and they, don't even, they don't worry about fault. They don't say, it's my fault. It, it, sometimes they say, it's my fault. Like, it's my fault. I should have done a better job leading these folks. I'll take care of it. But they never go back into their team and say, whose fault is this? They're more than willing to accept responsibility. And then humble. Uh, if, if, if you're a leader and you're not willing to ask forgiveness, like you never screw up to the point where you need to go back to somebody and say, hey, I'm sorry, will you forgive me for this? It was wrong, it was inappropriate, or it was misguided, or it was a wrong decision, or I lost my cool. Uh, it wasn't the standard to which I want to hold myself. And will you forgive me for that? If you're not willing to do that, I can tell you the st your stature in the eyes of your team is much smaller than it could be. We live in this world where we try to create this, this image, this impression, and it's been exacerbated by social media, but it's always been there, that we have it all together. And we don't. And our teams know it. And if you're a leader who's not humble enough to realize that and go back to the team and admit it, then you're giving up an extraordinary amount of leadership capital that you could have with this group. Humility or pe humble people are also the ones who read and journal. Not, I get it. Not everybody's a reader. But there's no excuse nowadays between podcasts and Audible and, and all the different online resources, TED Talks and videos and 
things we have at our disposal. If you think that you know it all, and, and to the extent that you're not willing to invest any time learning new stuff, and if you don't take time to sit and reflect on what's going on, uh, there's a great there's a there's a great um, logic and 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 reasoning behind getting your brain to slow down at the speed with which your hand can write or or fingers can type, and that ability to process and be retrospective is a character trait of humility. And finally, being able to man the spotlight. Are you somebody who can get behind the spotlight and make sure that other people are standing in front of it and getting the due uh, credit for their achievements? So leadership, again, we're kind of talking, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that all this is still a little bit nebulous, but hopefully the picture is starting to come into focus. So before we get into what the activities look like, I do want to spend some time talking about what are the practical um, things that you have to have in place first, right? And there's four of them. And in our company, what we do at the start of every client engagement, we, we do kind of a deep dive into the business. You call it due diligence. We call it strategic assessment. But what we do is, is we go through, and there's a pyramid of layered priorities that we're trying to understand about the business. Uh, and there's five of them. So I'll give you the five, and I'll come back. The first is culture. So we have to understand what is the state of the culture in this business, and is there any possibility, like what is the readiness of this business to start embarking on strategic planning and execution given the current state of the culture? The second is the leadership team. To what extent is the leadership team in a position to build and execute strategic plans? Is there, an, is there a model of servant leadership in the organization, or is it all authoritative? Do we have... Um, do we have clear roles and responsibilities outlined, or is it very, very nebulous and the org chart's almost horizontally flat? Is there a vision? Do people understand where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish? Like, and is it, is it, um, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not vision, that's culture. Culture, leadership, business operations, that's the third tier, getting ahead of myself. Business operations, to what extent are there, are there systems and processes in place according to which the business runs, or is everything done 100 different ways? And then we get into sales and marketing. Where does the revenue generation come from? And finally, financial health and profitability. So those five layers of the pyramid all lead up to a business's ability to build and execute strategic plans. But the foundation of that pyramid is always, and always will be, culture. When we say culture, what do we mean? And we mean these four things, values, vision, why, and mission. So if you're not willing to invest the time in that foundational piece of the pyramid, which is just below leadership team, which is what we're talking about, then the leadership team efforts really aren't going to go anywhere. And, and there's reasons for that. I'll explain that. So values. What are values? When we ask this of a, of a client that we're going through a uh, strategic assessment with, a business that we're getting introduced for the first time, the thing that we're trying to figure out is, are there non-negotiables that everybody is willing to be held accountable to? And to what extent are they explicit? Like, it, it, we hear, like, are there values in the organization? Yeah, we've got values that are, you know, we're, we're Family is very important to us, or honesty, or integrity, or, you know, we'll do these interviews with key players in the organization, and we'll get a laundry list, like six, eight, ten values. They're just, like, rattling them off. And the only thing we can really do with that is, you know, if, you, if you've seen a word cloud, like, we take all of these responses, and we feed them into the black box, and it spits out a word cloud, and it says, you know, well, the, the value of honesty is really, really big and right in the middle, that must be a core value. That's about all we can do with it. But those values are not explicitly held. There's no, there's no sign on the wall or piece of paper that I can go look at or a website I can go to that says, this is what honesty means in this organization. And for that reason, it just becomes cliche. It, it's something that can mean anything to anybody, which means it means nothing to anybody. So... When we talk about values, we just want three to four words with definitions that describe the culture, and they need to be explicit, meaning they need to be like in writing. It's not up for debate what the values are. The values are what the values are. So I've given you an example. These are our values. It's easy for me to pull ours and to go out to a client and ask to borrow theirs. But we have them. There's a bunch of strategic plans on the, on the wall behind me, and they all have values on them. So when we talk about values... 
in, at Axiom, we're talking about care, truth, diligence, and learning. Those are the four words. But the words are really just proxies for the definitions. The words are shorthand for the definitions because it's the definitions that make the difference between where, the way Axiom defines care and the way some other business might define care. So care means we love those we serve. Truth means we say hard things. Diligence means we bring the right amount of work to the task. Learning, we're humble and ask good questions. So what are these for? What are, what are we using them for? Are they for you know, a firm brochure? Do we do those anymore? Are they for collateral materials? Are they for a website? Like, yeah, this is great. This is great stuff for website content. We should give this to our web developer. But is that it? What do, what do they mean in the day-to-day operation of the business? Well, one of the things that happens is every single meeting that we have starts with a mission moment. A mission moment is the first two to three, maybe five minutes of the meeting where we're asking, where did we see our values show up in the last week? And there are stories of things that happened, and they have to be tied back to a value. So I'll give you an example from this past week. We had a team member, team member who's going through a hard time, and he said, hey, I just want to call out so-and-so on the team for demonstrating this value of care. Uh, it was a really hectic week. We had a lot going on, and in the mail, I got these uh, gift cards for that allowed us to just basically order dinner and not have to worry about dinners for a couple nights, and that was huge for us. Um, we might we might have another team member uh, a couple weeks ago said, "I want to call out called out me, so I want to call out Joey because we were in a meeting, and I heard him say some hard things to the client. There were some things that that needed to be said. Uh, there were things that the client needed to know, but I know they were very difficult for the client to hear, and for that reason, I know they were very difficult for Joey to say, but he did it." And he really lived out our value of truth, right? And those mission moments are great because they kind of reinforce the values. They, they help us, they, they basically help us memorize them. They help us remember them. They help us reflect and say, where did we see this stuff show up so that we can internalize them? But more important are the difficult conversations that come from values. And I'm spending so much time on this because... Our clients tell us this is the most practical tool in their toolbox that we bring to the table. So the difficult conversations look more like this. Um, Hey, uh, I need to have a a quick chat with you. Um, Earlier on the call, you know, when three of us were on the call, uh, you were saying some things about a client that were kind of disparaging. I get it. You're frustrated. Um, But that is not living out our value of care. And I need you to do a little bit better being consistent on that. Or um, diligence. Uh, hey, can I? We're going to debrief on the the meeting that we just had with the client. I got to tell you, uh, it just seemed like you were not as prepared as you needed to be. And our our value of diligence means bringing the right amount of work to the task. And I got to believe that I'm probably not the only one who noticed. I need you to do better at being more consistent in diligence. Or, diligence, by the way, is there because I tend to be a workaholic. Me and I were joking about this before the session started, of like, I'm the one who tends to over-prepare, and I take away from my family, I take away from my team members because I'm not bringing the right amount of work. I'm bringing too much work to the task. And so some of those conversations, I've had a conversation with one of my team members last week where I said, hey, I need you to schedule your vacations for the rest of the year. You're running at a a pace that's not sustainable. And I get it. I understand that these seasons are going to happen. But you got to get those times on the calendar. You have to coordinate so that you and I can can share the load while you're you're gone or leading up to it. But you got to be more consistent on this diligence front. You're not bringing the right amount of work to the task. You're killing yourself. It's those conversations that will create the culture that you want. And if you're not willing to invest the time to articulate what the values are and define them, then pretty much everything we're going to talk about afterwards doesn't, your leaders are not going to have the tools that they need to be able to have the conversations. And the problem is that it's very rare that we have issues with what people are doing. If we had issues with what they were doing, it goes to competency. And that's a very easy conversation to have. Look, like you're not hitting your sales quota. You you, you should have been off draw three months ago. You're either going to have to do it or we're going to have to make a change. Or, look, the, the financial packages went out for the fourth time with errors in them. If you can't check your work, then I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to stay in this position. That's, that's, those are conversations about what's being done. Those are not the conversations that my clients call and ask questions about. 
when my clients call, they say, hey, um, this salesperson's killing it, but we just keep getting complaints. And it, it's, it's not just complaints from the customers. It's complaints from production. It's complaints from service. And, you know, but the, they're doing what we're asking them to do. But it's how they're doing it that has created a problem. And with those business owners, I pull out their one-page strategic plan. looks like this. This is what they all get from us. It has their values on it. And I'll say, hey, that, that doesn't sound very consistent with your value of professionalism as you've defined it. When's the last time you had a conversation with that salesperson about professionalism? And that becomes the tool that makes the difference. Vision is really just a picture of the future that's easily and unambiguously communicated. As CPAs, you'll appreciate the fact that I like numbers in our vision. They allow us to create a much clearer picture in everybody's head of exactly what we're after. And if you want to leverage the efforts of others, you're going to have to get good at communicating vision. And a, a clear and unambiguous vision is the easiest way to do that. Why? There's a great book Simon Sinek wrote uh, called Start With Why. Don't go out and read the book if you haven't read it. Just look up the TED Talk because the TED Talk will tell you everything you need to know in a lot shorter amount of time. Um, but why is about what motivates the leader to get out of bed. And it's what creates the motivation, or that motivation is what creates the interpersonal connection. So here at Axiom, we believe that small business is the greatest way to, to change the world for the better. We believe small business done well has an incredible impact. And because we believe that, uh, because we all believe that same thing, we work incredibly well together. And it's fantastic at creating that connection. And finally, mission. Mission is just the practical statement so that the public can understand what you're about. Now, I'll say this. There's no point in trying to articulate mission until you've done the homework of values, vision, and why. So if you're trying to write a mission statement without having done that previous work first, don't be surprised if it doesn't go anywhere. Do the values, vision, why first, and there's some tools that we'll give you access to at the end of the call that can help you walk through the process. So let's go through the practice. This is the easy stuff, right? None of this stuff should be that difficult for most businesses, especially those of you who are in larger, larger organizations who have more formal processes. And some of these you'll have, and some of them you'll need to go back and take a look at and say, we have it, but it's not serving us as well as we want it to. So the first practice that has to happen in every one of the organizations that wants to do leadership development is there has, has to be a clear uh, delineation of roles and accountabilities across the organization. Uh, Gina Wickman, small business consultant, uh, wrote a book called Traction a few years ago. It's become hugely popular. He has a, a great approach that we like a lot. Uh, and so, like I said, we don't have any good ideas. We just steal them. Uh, but Wickman talks about an accountability chart versus an org chart. An accountability chart is a chart that, rather than titles, focuses on what are the three or four core accountabilities for each one of these positions. And if you haven't done that for your organization, then you have, really haven't defined what good skills competency looks like in any position, which is going to hamstring your leaders in terms of understanding what standards they're supposed to hold people accountable to in addition to the how of values. The second are there are all these tools out there that allow you to become more knowledgeable about people. Um, we use Reach, there's TTI, there's Colby, there's DISC, there's Enneagram, there's StrengthsFinder. If you're not using these tools to get insights into what's happening in your organization to understand people better, you're missing a huge piece of insight, and it's a fairly easy thing to implement. Rhythms. Rhythms are the metronome, right? So when we talk about being able to coordinate the efforts of a large group of people, and large could be more than you, right? It could be once you have two or three employees to worry about, you're going to have to coordinate efforts. And so we institute these rhythms with our clients, and they're hugely effective at giving leaders opportunities to flex their leadership skills and develop them and make them better. Daily huddles, weekly operations meetings, monthly financial reviews with the team, quarterly priority setting where each member of the team says, here's my focus for the next 13 weeks. This is the big rock that I'm going to tackle that's going to help the company accomplish its goals over the next year. And then finally, the annual strategy session. The common thread between all of these kind of rhythm scenarios, these agenda scenarios, is that they do have a set agenda, 
It's not freewheeling. Everybody knows what to expect. They all bring accountability to the forefront. Every single one has action items that come out of decisions that are made, and they start the next meeting following up saying, did you get done what you said you were going to get done? And the last hallmark is that they all work on solving problems in the business. We're always working on the business. It's not something that we delegate to one or two people. The entire team is working on the business, and the leaders are helping them coordinate those efforts. And if you don't have those rhythms, then you're going you're to miss it. And then finally, strategy. Strategy can mean 100 things to 100 different people, or maybe 90 things to 100 different people. But strategy is simply the structures that keep the, the people with a lot of responsibility, like the CEOs, from constantly changing the direction of the company. A strategy is just blinders. They're the plan structures and resources that give your team the freedom to pursue something long enough to make a difference in it. And the reason that this is so important if you're trying to develop a leadership pipeline is that your leaders want influence. They want to build something that's not just about them. They want to build something that they can look back at either five years from now or at their next opportunity and say, hey, I, I helped design that. I helped build that. I helped accomplish that. And strategy is you getting out of their way. It's the leader getting out of their way and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, we're going to commit to this strategy for one, two, three years and give you guys the space to make a difference. So to wrap up, I just want to talk briefly about this distinction between management and leadership. I think there's a lot of confusion. When we go into teams, we'll see what's defined as a leadership team is really some leaders and some managers all pushed in the room together. And you can tell a difference because the managers have these traits on the left and the leaders have these traits on the right. Every organization has to have a management team, right? Of any size, we've got to leverage the efforts of some people to get the work done. But we're not going to be able to lead effectively if we're not willing to make that distinction. So you have to do it. The way you do it is that you ask your leaders to make some to sign up, right? It's a calling. It's also a privilege. But it has to be voluntary. And in my view, your leaders really need to affirm these five statements. It has to be about impacting the lives of others. It has to, there has to be an explicit um, desire, effort, intention to encourage, exhort, and empower the people that they're leading. It has to be a calling that they pursue at all times. You can't be a great leader on Monday morning and, or for a Friday afternoon and a crappy leader at your kid's soccer game on Saturday morning. It doesn't work that way. Leadership has to be consistent. Leaders have to measure their success by the success of those they lead. And finally, there's nothing about leadership that's compatible with the status quo mentality. And if you don't have people who are willing to make these statements, they don't belong in your leadership team, and that's okay. You have people who are willing to affirm these statements who don't have a lot of responsibility yet, and those are the ones that you need to identify in your pipeline and start working to give them more responsibility, to get the reps in, so that they have the skill sets from a technical perspective to have the respect in the field from their peers that they, they can lead very effectively. So next steps. What do you do? You take all this information and you say, like, that's great, Joey. Uh, fantastic. Sounds great. What do I do when I leave here? Number one, if you don't have this in your, in your organization, and for those of you who are in large organizations, this may not be up to you. We've worked in very large law firms where one department took on the challenge to build this stuff and it changed the company. And the, the rest of the law firm started to come and say, hey, we want some of what you've got. So you can do this in a department. It's more difficult, but it can be done. Number two, engage leaders at all levels. you got to get that the roles and accountabilities thing has to be figured out. You need to start using tools to get smarter about people. If you don't have those intentional rhythms set up or if they've kind of lost their way and they're not as intentional as they used to be, you're going to have to reestablish it. And then finally, you're going to have to get out of the way and give them a directive, an area to focus on for two to three years so that they can actually make a difference. And in your organization, you have the opportunity to group people of very similar responsibility so that you, you will have groups who can work effectively in making this stuff happen. 
but you have to do the work of roles and accountabilities. I can't emphasize enough how important that is. And then finally, deal with the elephant in the room. You've got some people who have management authority but are not looking for leadership responsibility. And you may have to disinvite some people from that leadership team because they're not true leaders. If you have a pipeline, there's some people you could probably develop and bring onto that team in short order. Take a fresh look at the organization and ask, what have we started to accept the status quo? Whether it's weeds in the parking lot or dirty bathrooms or processes that don't put customers first or a lack of values or values on the wall that don't mean anything and nobody talks about them and that's okay. If, that's, if that stuff has become status quo, pretty much everything in your organization that's become status quo needs to be up for challenge. And then finally, maintain a loose grip. It's unlikely that any organization of almost any size is going to be able to keep up with the progress and advancement and growth of an individual who is motivated and wants to be a great leader. You're not going to be able to grow fast enough, and that's okay. You're going to have to move those people on in their career to other opportunities. But if your company becomes known as one who's able to generate these leaders and instill values and build people who are ultimately concerned most about the success of others, and then they go out into the world and they spread that knowledge and that reputation of yours, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a pretty good company. I would say that... uh, of all the things that you have to do, the stuff that's most important is in that foundation. Uh, there are some free resources on our website. You can go to axiomstrategic.com slash F-I-C-P-A, and, um, and you have access to the stuff there. It's completely free of charge. It's for this group. We hope that you take advantage of it. Thanks for your time. I hope you have a great day. I hope you learn a lot. And um, if we can help in any way, please let us know.